Part One of Vices Are Not Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vices Are Not Crimes by Lysander Spooner. Part One. Vices are those acts by which a man harms himself or his property. Crimes are those acts by which one man harms the person or property of another. Vices are simply the errors which a man makes in his search after his own happiness. Unlike crimes, they imply no malice toward others, and no interference with their persons or property. In vices, the very essence of crime, that is, the design to injure the person or property of another, is wanting. It is a maxim of the law that there can be no crime without a criminal intent, that is, without the intent to invade the person or property of another. But no one ever practices a vice with any such criminal intent. He practices his vice for his own happiness solely, and not from any malice toward others. Unless this clear distinction between vices and crimes be made and recognised by the laws, there can be on earth no such thing as individual right, liberty or property, and the corresponding and co-equal rights of another man to the control of his own person and property. For a government to declare a vice to be a crime and to punish it as such is an attempt to falsify the very nature of things. It is as absurd as it would be to declare truth to be falsehood, or falsehood truth. 2. Every voluntary act of a man's life is either virtuous or vicious. That is to say, it is either in accordance or in conflict with those natural laws of matter and mind on which his physical, mental and emotional health and well-being depend. In other words, every act of his life tends, on the whole, either to his happiness or to his unhappiness. No single act in his whole existence is indifferent. Furthermore, each human being differs from his physical, mental and emotional constitution, and also in the circumstances by which he is surrounded from every other human being. Many acts, therefore, that are virtuous and tend to happiness in the case of one person, are vicious and tend to unhappiness in the case of another person. Many acts also that are virtuous and tend to happiness in the case of one man at one time and under one set of circumstances, are vicious and tend to unhappiness in the case of the same man at another time and under other circumstances. 3. To know what actions are virtuous and what vicious, in other words, to know what actions tend on the whole to happiness and what to unhappiness, in the case of each and every man, in each and all the conditions in which they may severally be placed, is the profoundest and most complex study to which the greatest human mind ever has been or ever can be directed. It is nevertheless the constant study to which each and every man the humblest in intellect as well as the greatest, is necessarily driven by the desires and necessities of his own existence. It is also the study in which each and every person, from his cradle to his grave, must necessarily form his own conclusions. 
because no one else knows or feels, or can know or feel, as he knows and feels, the desires and necessities, the hopes and fears, and impulses of his own nature, or the pressure of his own circumstances. 4. It is often not possible to say of those acts that are called vices, that they really are vices, except in degree. That is, it is difficult to say of any action or courses of action that they are called vices, that they would really have been vices if they had stopped short of a certain point. The question of virtue or vice, therefore, in all such cases, is a question of quantity and degree, and not of the intrinsic character of any single act by itself. This fact adds to the difficulty, not to say the impossibility, of any one's, except each individual for himself, drawing any accurate line, or anything like any accurate line, between virtue and vice, that is, of telling where virtue ends and vice begins. And this is another reason why this whole question of virtue and vice should be left for each person to settle for himself. 5. Vices are usually pleasurable, at least for the time being, and often do not disclose themselves as vices by their effects until after they have been practised for many years, perhaps for a lifetime. To many, perhaps most of those who practise them, they do not disclose themselves as vices at all during life. Virtues, on the other hand, often appear so hard and rugged, they require the sacrifice of so much present happiness, at least, and the results which alone prove them to be virtues, are often so distant and obscure, in fact so absolutely invisible to the minds of many, especially of the young, that, from the very nature of things, there can be no universal or even general knowledge that they are virtues. In truth, the studies of profound philosophers have been expended, if not wholly in vain, certainly with very small results, in efforts to draw the lines between the virtues and the vices. If then it becomes so difficult, so nearly impossible in most cases, to determine what is and what is not vice, and especially if it be so difficult in nearly all cases, to determine where virtue ends and vice begins, and if these questions which no one can really and truly determine for anybody but himself are not to be left free and open for experience by all, each person is deprived of the highest of all his rights as a human being, to wit, his right to inquire, investigate, reason, try experiments, judge, and ascertain for himself what is to him virtue, and what is to him vice. In other words, what on the whole conduces to his happiness, and what on the whole lends to his unhappiness. If this great right is not to be left free and open to all, then each man's whole right, as a reasoning human being, to liberty and the pursuit of happiness, is denied to him. 6. We all come into the world in ignorance of ourselves and of everything around us. By a fundamental law of our natures we are all constantly impelled by the desire of happiness and the fear of pain. 
but we have everything to learn as to what will give us happiness and save us from pain. No two of us are wholly alike, either physically, mentally, or emotionally, or consequently in our physical, mental, or emotional requirements for the acquisition of happiness, and the avoidance of unhappiness. Not one of us, therefore, can learn this indispensable lesson of happiness and unhappiness, of virtue and vice, for another. Each must learn it for himself. To learn it, he must be at liberty to try all experiments that commend himself to his judgment. Some of his experiments succeed, and because they succeed are called virtues. Others fail, and because they fail are called vices. He gathers wisdom as much from his failures as from his successes, from his so-called vices as from his so-called virtues. Both are necessary to his acquisition of that knowledge, of his own nature and of the world around him, and of their adaptations or non-adaptations to each other, which shall show him how happiness is acquired and pain avoided. And, unless he can be permitted to try these experiments to his own satisfaction, he is restrained from the acquisition of knowledge, and consequently from pursuing the great purpose and duty of his life. 7. A man is under no obligation to take anybody's word, or yield to anybody's authority, on a matter so vital to himself, and regard to which no one else has or can have any such interest as he. He cannot, if he would, safely rely upon the opinions of other men, because he finds that the opinions of other men do not agree. Certain actions, or courses of action, have been practised by many millions of men through successive generations, and have been held by them to be, on the whole, conducive to happiness. Other men in other ages or countries or under other conditions have held as a result of their experience and observation that these actions tended on the whole to unhappiness and were therefore vicious. The question of virtue or vice, as already remarked in a previous section, has also been in most minds a question of degree, that is, of the extent to which certain actions should be carried, and not of the intrinsic character of any single act by itself. The questions of virtue and vice have therefore been as various, and in fact as infinite, as the varieties of mind, body, and condition of the different individuals inhabiting the globe. And the experience of ages has left an infinite number of these questions unsettled, in fact, it can scarcely be said to have settled any of them. 8. In the midst of this endless variety of opinion, what man or what body of men has the right to say, in regard to any particular action or course of action, we have tried this experiment and determined every question involved in it. We have determined it not only for ourselves but for all others, and as to all those who are weaker than we, we will coerce them to act in obedience to our conclusions. We will suffer no further experiment or inquiry by any one, and consequently no further acquisition of knowledge by anybody. Who are the men who have the right to say this? Certainly there are none such. The men who really do say it 
are either shameless impostors and tyrants, who would stop the progress of knowledge and usurp absolute control over the minds and bodies of their fellow-men, and are therefore to be resisted instantly, and to the last extent, or they are themselves too ignorant of their own weakness and of their true relations to other men, to be entitled to any other consideration than sheer pity or contempt. We know, however, that there are such men as these in the world. Some of them attempt to exercise their power only within a small sphere, to wit upon their children, their neighbours, their townsmen and their countrymen. Others attempt to exercise it on a larger scale. For example, an old man at Rome, aided by a few subordinates, attempts to decide all questions of virtue and vice, that is, of truth or falsehood especially in matters of religion. He claims to know and teach what religious ideas and practices are conducive or fatal to a man's happiness, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. He claims to be miraculously inspired for the performance of this work, thus virtually acknowledging, like a sensible man, that nothing short of miraculous inspiration would qualify him for it. This miraculous inspiration, however, has been ineffectual to enable him to settle more than a very few questions. The most important to which common mortals can attain is an implicit belief in his, the Pope's, infallibility, and secondly, that the blackest vices of which they can be guilty are to believe and declare that he is only a man like the rest of them. It required some fifteen or eighteen hundred years to enable him to reach definite conclusions on these two vital points. Yet it will seem that the first of these must necessarily be preliminary to his settlement of any other questions, because until his own infallibility is determined, he can authoritatively decide nothing else. He has, however, heretofore attempted or pretended to settle a few others, and he may perhaps attempt or pretend to settle a few more in the future, if he shall continue to find anybody to listen to him. But his success so far certainly does not encourage the belief that he will be able to settle all questions of virtue and vice, even in his peculiar department of religion, in time to meet the necessities of mankind. He, or his successors, will undoubtedly be compelled at no distant day to acknowledge that he has undertaken a task to which all his miraculous inspiration was inadequate, and that, of necessity, each human being must be left to settle all questions of this kind for himself. And it is not unreasonable to expect that all other popes, in other and lesser spheres, will sometime have cause to come to the same conclusion. No one, certainly not claiming supernatural inspiration, should undertake a task to which obviously nothing less than such inspiration is adequate and clearly no one should surrender his own judgment to the teaching of others, unless he first be convinced that these others have something more than ordinary human knowledge on this subject. If those persons who fancy themselves gifted with both the power and the right to define and punish other men's vices would but turn their thoughts inwardly, they would probably find that they have a great work to do at home and that, when that shall have been completed, they will be little disposed to do more toward correcting the vices of others than simply to give to others the results of their experience and observation. 
In this sphere their labours may possibly be useful, but in the sphere of infallibility and coercion they will probably, for well-known reasons, meet with even less success in the future than such men have met with in the past. 9. It is now obvious, from the reasons already given, that governments would be utterly impractical if it were to take cognizance of vices and punish them as crimes. Every human being has his or her vices. Nearly all men have a great many, and they are of all kinds. Physiological, mental, emotional, religious, social, commercial, industrial, economical, etc., etc. If government is to take cognizance of any of these vices and punish them as crimes, then, to be consistent, it must take cognizance of them all, and punish all impartially. The consequence would be that every one would be imprisoned for his or her vices. There would be no one left outside to lock the doors upon those within. In fact, courts enough could not be found to try the offenders, or prisons enough built to hold them. All human industry in the acquisition of knowledge and even in acquiring the means of subsistence, would be arrested, for we would all be under constant trial or imprisonment for our vices. But even if it were possible to imprison all the vicious, our knowledge of human nature tells us that as a general rule they would be far more vicious in prison than they ever have been out of it. 10. A government that shall punish all vices impartially is so obviously an impossibility that no one was ever found, or ever will be found, foolish enough to propose it. The most that any one proposes is that government should punish some, one, or at most a few, of what he esteems the grossest of them. But this discrimination is an utterly absurd, illogical, and tyrannical one. What right has any body of men to say, the vices of other men we will punish, but our own vices nobody shall punish. We will restrain other men from seeking their own happiness, according to their own notions of it, but nobody shall restrain us from seeking our own happiness, according to our own notions of it. We will restrain other men from acquiring any experimental knowledge of what is conducive or necessary to their own happiness but nobody shall restrain us from acquiring an experimental knowledge of what is conducive or necessary to our own happiness. Nobody but knaves or blockheads ever thinks of making such absurd assumptions as these. And yet evidently it is only upon such assumptions that anybody can claim the right to punish the vices of others, and at the same time claim exemption from punishment for his own. 11. Such a thing as a government, formed by voluntary association, would never have been thought of if the object proposed had been the punishment of all vices impartially, because nobody wants such an institution, or would voluntarily submit to it. But a government, formed by voluntary association, for the punishment of all crimes, is a reasonable matter because everybody wants protection for himself against all crimes by others, and also acknowledges the justice of his own punishment if he commits a crime. 12. It is a natural impossibility that a government should have a right to punish men for their vices, 
because it is impossible that a government should have any rights except such as the individuals composing it had previously had as individuals. They could not delegate to a government any rights which they did not themselves possess. They could not contribute to the government any rights except such as they themselves possessed as individuals. Now nobody but a fool or an impostor pretends that he, as an individual, has a right to punish other men for their vices. But anybody and everybody have a natural right, as individuals, to punish other men for their crimes. For everybody has a natural right, not only to defend his own person and property against aggressors, but also to go to the assistance and defence of everybody else whose person or property is invaded. The natural right of each individual to defend his own person and property against an aggressor, and to go to the assistance and defence of everyone else whose person or property is invaded, is a right without which men could not exist on the earth. And government has no rightful existence except in so far as it embodies, and is limited by, this natural right of individuals. But the idea that each man has a natural right to decide what are virtues and what are vices, that is, what contribute to that neighbour's happiness and what do not, and to punish him for all that do not contribute to his, is what no one ever had the impudence or folly to assert. It is only those who claim that government has some rightful power, which no individual or individuals ever did, or ever could, delegate to it that claim that government has any rightful power to punish vices. It will do for a pope or a king, who claims to have received direct authority from heaven to rule over his fellow-men, to claim the right, as the vice-regent of God, to punish men for their vices. But it is a sheer and utter absurdity for any government, claiming to derive its power wholly from the grant of the governed, to claim any such power, because everybody knows that the governed never would grant it. For them to grant it would be an absurdity, because it would be granting away their own right to seek their own happiness, since to grant away their right to judge of what will be for their happiness is to grant away all their right to pursue their own happiness. End of part one